Good morning. Would you stand to your feet if you're able to this morning? It's good to see all 17 of you in here. <laughs> Very brave. Very brave. We're welcoming all of you who are worshiping with us online. It is good to be in the presence of the Lord together. We were in our pre-service huddle with some of our team, and I just said to them, we're here. And it is, sometimes I've lived long enough now, I know that half the battle is just showing up for anything. And so we're here. And the Lord promises that wherever two or three are gathered in his name, that he'd be there too. So he's like, you just show up, I'm gonna show up. And you that are worshiping with us online, you showed up, Jesus is showing up with us. That's the promise. And we don't know what he has planned. (laughs) That's the whole fun of this thing. And so this morning, church family, would you just open your hands? It's a posture of surrender. It's also a posture of welcoming. We're welcoming the presence of the Lord. We're giving up to him all the things that we're carrying carrying in here that are heavy and burdensome to us. The prophet Jeremiah said, pour out your hearts like water in the presence of the Lord. And I don't know what you're carrying this morning. Maybe you're carrying some gratitude that you need to pour out. Just pour it out. Maybe you're carrying grief this morning that you need to pour out. Pour it out. Maybe you're carrying just a ton of gladness because of what God has done. Pour it out. Maybe you're carrying this morning some pain and some hurt. It doesn't matter what's there. Just pour it out. The prophet says, pour out your hearts like water in the presence of the Lord. And somehow we know that as we do that, God gets mixed up in that process. And so, Jesus, we say that we welcome you. With your hands lifted high, church, would you say, Holy Spirit, we welcome you. Say, Holy Spirit, I welcome you. Yeah, I welcome you. We're here in your presence this morning. We ask that you would dazzle us with wonder upon wonder. We ask that you would teach us again how to worship. Teach us again how to pray. Teach us again how to hear the scriptures. Teach us again that we are the beloved sons and daughters of the living God. Grant this, we ask, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, and all God's people said, amen. Let's worship. Well, today is a good day to be in the house of the Lord, amen. Lord, we just, we want to bless you today, God, with our praise. We want to give you everything we got. Let's sing this out together. Rise, my soul. For there is glory to behold It's the beauty of the risen Lord God be praised, God be praised Fix your eyes, fix your eyes On the only one who satisfies The time has come to lift Him high God be praised Pray. 
us out and heals our diseases. Who heals our diseases, forgives all our sin, who crowns us with mercy in every good thing, who's rich in compassion. Let's sing that out, everyone. Praise to the Father, the Spirit and Son, who heals our diseases, forgives all our sin. Crowns us with mercy in every good thing. Who's rich in compassion, abounding in love. Praise to the Father, the Spirit, the Son, who hears our diseases, forgives all our sins. Crowns us with mercy in every good thing. Who's rich in compassion, abounding in love. just encourage you this morning to be like a child. Find that inner child today. Just say, Lord, we don't want to be hard to amaze. I don't want to be a person that's hard to impress. Nobody likes those people, for being honest. <laughs> Tell them something, this cool thing, oh yeah, fine, whatever. It's not cool enough for me. Let's not be that way with the Lord. Let's be easily impressed because there's a lot to be impressed by today. I haven't seen snow like this in ever. <laughs> I was like, wow. Oh my gosh. So inconvenient, but so beautiful. So I want to just encourage you guys, be impressed by the Lord today and what he's done. There's a lot to be thankful for. Yeah, we have trials, we have tribulations, but we also have blessings. We have so many blessings. I'm assuming we all ate this week. We all had food. Most of us probably watched a TV show. Lord, we thank you that you have given us so many good things. So like children, we say thank you. Like children, we have faith and we wanna lift you high. We wanna just say, wow, look at what the Lord did. I know I'm talking a lot here, but there's this thing called a, a holy uh, naivety. And typically, elderly have it. Most young people don't. Um, if you're an elderly person, you can go out on a walk and say, wow, look at that beautiful tree. Look at that bark. It's incredible. 
And if you're younger, you've never even seen it. <laughs> it sounds ridiculous, but it's just like, oh, wow, look at that thing. And you're like, what? And typically, it's that old saying that's just thankful for every little thing. So let's be that way today. I don't know why I'm so stuck on that, but I just feel the Lord inviting us into an, a new enjoyment in Him right now.
this song in just a second. Well, I love this song. I've been singing it my whole life. And I love this song because it's where the life of the disciples should lead to the glory of God. Glorify thy name. And as we were worshiping, I was thinking about the Apostle Paul, Philippians chapter one. He's sitting in a prison and he doesn't know whether he's going to live or whether he's going to die. And he says that I have sufficient hope right now that I will in no way be ashamed but that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. And in that way, what Paul does is he shifts himself out of his circumstances and into the glory of God. And that's not a thing that we just do when we're at a moment of crisis. That is like the life of the disciple. That's where it leads. That's where it's supposed to go. And so this morning, I want you just to think about your life. And some of you might be actually sitting at that crossroads right now where you're like, I don't actually know how this is going to go. And if this doesn't spin in the right way, like it's kind of lights out on several fronts for me still. The cry of our hearts is glorify your name. And so I want you now just to take your life as it is, all of its complexity, all of its beauty, all of its hardship, all of its ache, all of the hope that you have. And I want you now to begin to shift your attention away from those circumstances and into the glory of God, singing the glory of God into your life. Let's sing it together, church. Jesus, we love you. Sing it into your circumstance, church. Come on. 
you're facing difficulty, sing it. what seems impossible. Jesus taught us, say with me. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. If you agree with that church, give God praise this morning. Amen. This is the moment in the service when we receive our offering Malachi 3:10. The scripture says, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. The Lord says, and test me in this and see if I will not open up the window of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough for you to contain. And so as an act of our discipleship, an act of our worship, we give unto the Lord. There are four ways to give. You can give online, the mobile app. You can give in the mail, or we have drop boxes on the way out. But as you give this morning, give from your heart. Tied in with that this morning, I'll just remind you that we have our special offering. We're going to be taking up an offering on December 3rd to begin to seed some money for a future facility, a permanent facility for New Life East one day. So as I've said to you before, we're calling our church to 100% participation in that. Whatever you're able to give, give unto the Lord out of your strength and be praying over our whole community, our whole church, that there would be a generous, generous supply that would be given uh, that morning. Sound good? Hallelujah. Amen. Okay, one more announcement I need to make for you uh, this morning related to December 3rd as we're getting ready uh, to head into a season that we think demands new unity of us as the people of God at New Life East. Now, uh, we're going to make a big move with our services here. And so since our inception, we've been two services, 9 a.m. and 11 a.m., which is wonderful, but it almost kind of creates this like couple separate congregations thing. And as we're heading into a new season of unity, we wanted to bring our two, those two communities together. And so starting December 3rd, that very same day that we're doing the special offering, we're going to be combining our services for the foreseeable future. So 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. are going to merge together and become one 10 o'clock service. We'll have extra kids ministry. Yeah, amen. And thank God for that. All of our volunteers are grateful for that. We're going to have extra kids' ministry rooms available. We'll still be doing fellowship hour afterwards, coffee and donuts. And this will be a chance uh, for us almost to reintroduce ourselves to ourselves as a community. It's going to be really amazing. Uh, so mark that in your calendar, and you'll hear us say that over and over again uh, as the weeks progress. Pastor Rory is going to open the word in just a second. Before he does that, I want you to turn around and find three people that you have never met before and tell them I'm so glad to see you here. All the introverts are cringing, but I'm telling you to do it. Let's make it happen, church. Spread some friendship around the room.
Oh, good morning, New Life East. How are we doing? Doing good. You guys have braved the cold weather. It's not even November yet, and we are dealing with this craziness. It is good to see all of you. If you have a Bible, we are going to be in the book of 1 Kings. We're going to be in chapter 19 today. We've been walking through uh, the story that has been written in the text of 1 Kings, and um, we now come to this moment sort of in the text where the focus of the book early on was really literally on the kings of Israel and Judah as they were sort of unfolding in their legacies as kings. And now we've come to a point where really not just in the storytelling, but you even see it sort of in like the power dynamics. The kings are not the ones who are sort of holding the power and like pleasure and authority of God. It's almost shifted now to these group of nomadic weirdos called the prophets who are holding this power. And we've seen that last week in Pastor Andrew's sermon. And we come now to a text in 1 Kings 19 that for some of you might be familiar, for others of you it might be a little bit foreign. It's a text that uh, when I became a Christian, I heard in charismatic spaces get read all the time. I heard it in contemplative spaces get read all the time because it's a mysterious one. It's an interesting story. And it follows the character of Elijah, who we've been talking about. First Kings 19, starting in verse 1, it says, Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Now keep in mind, Elijah's just had this massive moment. Fire has come down from heaven. God has been proven to be the true God. And Jezebel is still praying to the other gods or considering what they might think about her. It's an interesting experience. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there. While he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, he came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. All at once an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not, everyone say not, he was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, 
I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, tore down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword, and I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said to him, go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael king over Aram, also anoint Jehu son of Nishmi king over Israel, and anoint Elisha son of Shaphat from Abel, Mahola, to succeed you as a prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escaped the sword of Hazael, and Elisha will put to death any who escaped the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all those who have not bound to who have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord and all God's people said. Let's pray. God, I love that word. Would you make us childlike so that we continue to be in shock and awe and wonder of you and the world that you have created? We pray that this morning as we read These texts, these texts that have such bizarre moments in them, these texts that invite us into a deeper, more mystical understanding of the kind of God that it is we worship, would you not stop surprising us, God? Would you continue to shock us? And somehow in the midst of that surprise and shock, would you draw us into yourself? Would you invite us to stand at the mouth of the cave and see you for who you are? That is what we pray today. We pray, as we always do, that the Holy Spirit would come, that you would meet us in the text of Scripture, that you would find our hearts open, our ears open, our eyes open to you today. We pray all this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let me ask you this morning, um, can you remember, or have you ever found yourself in a season of life, a moment of life, where it felt like you were getting everything right. It's those moments where you want to wake up early and you know what happens? You wake up early. It's the moments where you wake up in the morning and you want your kids to just be nice and joyous and fun. And they wake up and they are nice and joyous and fun. You have those moments where you wake up and you hope to go to a job that fulfills you and gives you life and your boss is just a little bit nicer. And he is. It's those moments where the financial situation of your family is just working out. One plus one equals, well, like seven. You find yourself in abundance. Everything is just like going and it's working. Those seasons might feel few and far between, but I think we've all had moments where we've experienced them. It just felt like, man, life is, it's working. I can remember the first time I ever experienced this. I was like 18, 19 years old. I became a Christian a few years prior, like late in high school, but now I had I graduated high school. I was interning at a church. I was working for the Lord. And he was very happy about that. My life had started to sort of like feel like it was in the right place, right? Like I had good friendships. I had good relationships. I was, I was serving the Lord with everything that I had. I was using my gifts. It felt like everything was sort of falling into place. I was like all the mischievous behavior of 16, 17-year-old Rory had fallen by the wayside. Not immediately, but slowly it did. And I can remember being like 19 years old, having this moment where it felt like everything was working. It felt like I had a clear vision of what my future was going to be. I started dating my now wife at the time, which was probably the best part of all this. I should have led with that. 
It just all felt like it was working out. And then in that same stretch of time, I remembered waking up in the middle of the night, first time this had ever happened, debilitating anxiety, just like pressing in on my chest. It was in that same season of life that I was, you know, sort of presented with the idea that my personality, my demeanor, it just like sort of bends toward depression. It was the first time in my life where it felt like everything was going right. And then all of a sudden it felt like everything crashed in on itself. A better question for us to ponder might not be, do you remember the season where everything was going right? But it might be the season. And the question might be, do you remember a season in your life where it felt like you were getting everything right and then everything just went wrong? You felt like you were doing every, you were working 50, 60 hours a week to make ends meet and one plus one somehow always equaled zero. You felt like you were trying to give your kids everything that you had. You felt like you were trying to do everything right and yet it just didn't reveal itself. You felt like you were giving the best that you had and it just wasn't showing up. Maybe for some of you that's been spiritual. You felt like you were, man, you know my God, I'm, I'm praying, I'm, I'm reading the Bible, I'm going to church consistently, I'm even serving, I'm even giving God. And things just don't go right. I wonder how many of us have been in seasons where it felt like we have gotten everything right and yet everything goes wrong. Can I tell you that that's exactly, like almost exactly what is happening to our friend Elijah here in this text? Is Elijah has had this like quite honestly, quite literally, like mountaintop religious experience with God. He's like, he spoke truth to power. He stood up to the like leaders of his day. He called out the falsehood in them, and he did all of it without social media. He stood there for real in flesh and blood and called it out. And he said, I guarantee that my God that I worship, Yahweh, the God of Israel, is more real than any of your gods. And we know what happened. He was proven right. Elijah devoted his whole life to this. He even says at one point in this text, he says to God, God, he says it twice, God, I have been so zealous for you. My life has been on fire for the living God. I am, God, I have done everything as you have asked me to do. I've put the prophets of Baal to shame. God, I have, God, I've done all of it right. And what we find so quickly in this text is a prophet who is not patting himself on the back, is a prophet who is not excited about the work that he has done. It's a prophet who has stumbled his way to a broom bush and said, God, I would rather at this point just die. Now, I want to say that this is certainly not a sermon about those of us who have found ourselves, or maybe even right now, find ourselves with the real struggle of wondering if the world would be a better place if we weren't alive. That's not what this sermon is about today. But I know that there are people who sit in this room, there are people who sit and watch our live stream who have found themselves in those spots where life's, the weight of it has become way too much and they find themselves all too often laying down at night and going, God, it would just be easier for me to not exist. And the only thing that I can tell you today is that God sees that, he's aware of it. He's aware of you. He's not foreign to it. What we find though in this text is a, is a prophet who is ready to give up a prophet who is ready to pull the ripcord on the things that he has given his whole life to. But what I also think we discover in this text is not just Elijah's frustration. What we discover in this text is a God who is not quite ready to give up on us. 
I think the first thing that I recognize about this story is that when we are ready to quit, we discover a God who is ready and willing to take care of us, to take care of us. On a cold day like today when it is freezing outside and there is ice, wouldn't it be nice to know that we could go inside and there would be a God who is ready and willing to take care of us? Think about what happens in this story. Verse 5, it says, Then he laid down under a bush and fell asleep. All at once an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. He looked around and there was by his head some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate. And drank and then laid down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat for the journey. It's just too much for you. So he got up, he ate, and he drank, strengthened by that food. He traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. Listen, Elijah finds himself when everything has sort of fallen apart, everything is not going the way that he wishes it would have gone. And he looks at God and says, I'd be better for me to not be alive. And what God does is he shows up and says, actually, I'm going to give you everything you need to make it through this very moment. It's interesting. He doesn't come to Elijah and go, hey, I'm going to give you like all the wealth in the world, all the wisdom in the world. I'm going to give you a, a lifetime subscription to like Whole Foods and you can just walk in there and get whatever groceries you want at any time. He comes to him and says, I'm going to give you exactly what you need for this moment in this time. And so he bakes bread in front of him. I mean, think about that. This angel shows up and doesn't come to him with like prepackaged food. This angel stops long enough to sit with Elijah and he starts mixing things and he then starts baking things. The smell of it must have woken Elijah up at some point. He then gives him water, something to drink. He gives him just enough to continue going. And this angel that shows up, this is not the angel that we often encounter in the text that is this sort of big mythological looking creature with like thousands of eyes and who knows how many feet and wings and all. The text tells us it's the angel of the Lord. And most often in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord is not like some random angel. It's like the spirit of God fleshing itself out on his own. So he hasn't just given Elijah enough food to eat. He hasn't just given Elijah enough to drink. He's given Elijah the very gift of himself. And he's shown up and he's looked at him and says, hey, I know exactly what you need in this moment. Not what you want, but I know what you need. And I'm willing to give it to you. This is how our God just works. When we're ready to quit, he is ready and willing to step in and take care of us. So church, I wanna ask you a really simple question, especially if you find yourself in a spot like this. What is it that you need from God right now? What is it that you need from him? Maybe a second part of that question is, has you, have you asked him for it? We talked about this last week, the way that prayer sort of unfolds in our lives. God won't give us anything that is out of step, but have, have you stopped and wondered long enough in the midst of what it is that you are going through? What is it that you need? Elijah needed something from God that was to say, I can take care of, I can feed you. I can give you a drink. And guess what, Elijah? I know you think everyone is out to get you. I'm not. What is it that you need from God? The caveat to that, though, is that for Elijah, God puts him to sleep before he gives it to him, which is something that happens in the Old Testament a lot if you trace the story. It is when God 
stumbles upon his people who are sleeping, that he can do his most miraculous work. I think if we're honest, sleeping is like the moment where we are like the least in tune with what is going on. We are quite literally asleep to whatever is happening in the world. Our bodies are still, our minds are shut down, our eyes are closed. And it's those moments in the scriptures that God shows up and does his miraculous work. It's as if God knows that sometimes he needs us to not be distracted by everything that is going on in order for him to do the most meaningful and caretaking work. So I would also ask you this morning, are there places in your life that you are so riled up in commotion that it would take a miracle for God to just break in? Is your body so riled up? Is your mind completely out of control or your thoughts and emotions completely pulling away at you? You find yourself going, God, what are you, what are you gonna do? What are you gonna do? What are you gonna do? Would you just rest? And just maybe in that moment, what you will find is that God has everything that you need to be taken care of. But it's not that he just shows up and like meets Elijah with these physical needs and gives him like a flatbread and some LaCroix. Like he, he shows up and does that. But the ultimate gift that we find is that when we're ready to quit, what we discover about God is that he is a God who is much closer to us than we think. The miraculous moment that happens on this is when the Lord comes to him and says, Elijah, I want you to go out and stand at the mouth of the cave and the presence of the Lord is about to pass by. Now, if you've read the Old Testament, you know that there are like some subtle hyperlinks here to the story of the exodus of God's people. Elijah has found himself out in the wilderness for 40 days, 40 nights, wandering on a journey. He's now standing at the edge of a cliff, much like Moses did. And God has said, listen, I'm about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart. You have to imagine Elijah's like, all right, here it is. God's showing up. It's the big thing. And it shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind just wasn't there. Something happened, but God wasn't there. After the wind, there was an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire. Now, Elijah, he's the prophet who just, in a chapter earlier, stood before all of the rulers, all of the prophets, and he said, God will send fire down from heaven. So fire is coming. Surely, this is God. In fact, for Elijah, that, like, that's like the clearest image he has. It's the most recent memory he has of how God works. But it's as if God looks at Elijah and says, I'm much more than just one little image. It says the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. After the fire came a gentle whisper. I think there's a lesson in here for us when we think, especially in charismatic spaces, when we think about what it's like for us to know God is with us. When we, we know that God is with us, not when a big miraculous event occurs. We know that God is with us, not just when he shows up and does the massive monstrosity event in our lives. We know that God is with us, not just when something unbelievable has unveiled itself for us. We know that God is with us Sometimes in the stillness and the quiet and our sensitivity to just recognizing that God has always been with us. He didn't show up miraculously in the earthquake. He didn't only show up when there was fire. It's as if he's looking at Elijah and saying, I know what you think I do, but actually, 
Let me show you how I'm present with you in the quietness of you just standing here. I actually think this is how God works throughout the scriptures. That there are key moments where something big happens and there's no doubt that God is in it. God frees Israel from Egypt. The water parts, no doubt God is doing this. God shows up, makes makes the sun itself stand still at moments. He creates all of the galaxies. He has the authority and power and control to do all sorts of big things. And yet I think about Jesus. Like, 1 Kings 19 has Jesus sort of painted all over it. Jesus doesn't show up in this miraculous big way. We see it that way now as we read it. But in Jesus' time, Jesus showed up in the backwoods of a forgotten space, born to a virgin who must have been considered absolutely ridiculous and crazy for even claiming such a thing. Born in a barn, a garage, in a manger. Our God, even when he comes to literally be with us, doesn't do it in a big, fantastical way. He does it in a soft, gentle sort of way. And even in Jesus grew up, this became a challenge for people. I think about what happens for Jesus in Mark 6, 1 through 3. If you have your Bible, you can flip there for a second because I think it's worth just pondering this. In Mark chapter 6, Jesus finds himself wandering around. He's teaching. He's been recognized as something is going on. People aren't quite sure yet. It says this. It says, Jesus left there and went to his hometown accompanied by his disciples when the Sabbath came. He began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. But then they asked this question, where did this man get these things, they asked? What's this wisdom that has been given? What are these remarkable miracles he's been performing? I love this line. Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas? And Simon, I want to propose to you that this is not a compliment of Jesus, This is a confused observation of him. He stands in the synagogue and teaches with authority. He can do miracles, and yet they are puzzled because where he has come from and who he has presented himself as is not fantastical. It's not amazing. He is a carpenter from the middle of nowhere. It's a reminder to us that the way that God often breaks in to our lives, especially when we're wondering if he's even there at all, is not in the big moments. It's in the still, small moments. It's always to grab the attention of us and to let us know that he has, in fact, always been among us. When we find ourselves in a job that feels like it is collapsing and falling apart, rarely does God come to us and go, I'm going to give you a six-figure raise and a promotion and more power. When we find ourselves with our family falling apart, rarely do we wake up the next morning and all of our family have gathered in our living room around the fire and are reading a book together. Rarely is it the big things. It's often in the small, subtle moments that God continues to let us know that he's there. But I find this text to be super challenging, like really challenging because of what happens once Elijah is aware that God is with him. What I notice 
about our lives in this is that often when we are ready to quit, this is what I want to spend the rest of our time talking about. God often calls us through and not out. He often calls us through and not out. Think about what God says to Elijah when this moment happens. Elijah, Elijah has looked at him and said, I want to die. And he says to him, Elijah, I want you to go back. Jehu will put to death any who escaped the sword of Hazael, and Elisha will put to death any who escaped the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, all whose mouths have not kissed him. He is inviting Elijah back into the fray at which he just came from. He doesn't invite Elijah into safety. He doesn't Elijah, he doesn't invite Elijah to run away from his life. He doesn't even say to him, Elijah, I see how hard this has been for you. I'm going to ask someone else to take care of it. You take a break for a minute. He calls him right back in to the fray. Now, the caveat to this, because I know how people will hear this. Some of us have found ourselves in abusive relationships. I don't believe that what God says to you is you shouldn't set up boundaries and you shouldn't do what is safe for you. I believe that there are moments in our lives when things have gone so haywire that the only safe and logical and reasonable thing for us to do is to take a step back. So I'm not saying that here. But I think there's a theme throughout the biblical narrative that God does not look at us when life falls apart, even when we have done everything right and says, you know what, just bail. He actually says the way in it is through it. And one of the stories that I think bothers me the most with this imagery is something that happens in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 16, maybe one of the more troubling stories in all of the Bible. If you grew up in Sunday school, you sort of know this story becomes, a, it becomes a significant part of what happens in the life and the blessing of Israel. There's a slave named Hagar who is a slave to Abram and Sarai. You know, Father Abraham becomes the blessing of all nations. Sarai, you're going to have a lineage of kids that is going to pass on the blessing. Thousands and thousands of generations. And Sarai comes to Abram and says, listen, God has for some reason not blessed me with a child. He says, she says, but we do have this handmaiden named Hagar. And I think, Abram, the best move, we make poor decisions when we are out of it, don't we? The best move is for you to sleep with her, get her pregnant, and maybe we can sort of circumvent this whole thing and get it rolling. And Abram, also not the brightest light in the bulb in this moment, says, you know what, that sounds like a good idea. And so he does. And the only thing that unfolds for Sarai is not blessing, it's bitterness, it's anger, it's resentment. And Abram, who's, <laughs> whose hands are tied, he basically says to her, you deal with Hagar as you want to deal with her. And the text gets pretty blunt that what Sarai does is abuse her. It's not clear how that abuse takes place. We don't know if it's physical. We don't know if it's just emotional. We don't know if it's, we, we don't know how it unfolds. But what we do know is that Hagar is completely mistreated. And so rightfully so, she runs away. And it is in the midst of her running away trying to hide from the very people that have caused her the most pain, the very situation that has unfolded to be the most brutal she has ever experienced, that God shows up and sees her, right? You know this story. 
It's the God who sees. That's where it comes from. And in it, this is the conversation that unfolds. The angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. Hear the words again, go back. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. You know what's interesting? Whose blessing was that originally? Sarai's. God says, Hagar, I see you. I see what has happened. But I'm telling you that I want you to go back. And it is on the other side of going back that you will receive the blessing that is owed to you. Friends, I think there is a bizarre thing in the way that God works in our world that God does not see suffering and pain the same way that we do. It is as if God sees pain and suffering as a sacrament. A sacrament is communion, it's baptism, it's these moments of tangible, visible practices, experiences where we get to come face to face with an invisible reality. Tells us something about who God is. Tells us something about who we are in the midst of the family of God. I love the way that Tim Keller describes what a sacrament is. He says that we call them sacraments Because through them, God's blessing and his grace is revealed to us in unique ways. I am wondering if suffering, if pain, if those moments in our life where we feel like we've done everything right and yet everything goes wrong are in fact like a sacrament. And that what we discover in them is the invisible reality that God is willing to take care of us in them. We discover the invisible reality that God is in fact with us. And what that then allows us to do is not have to run away from our lives. When our marriages break down, we don't have to run away from them. When your families hit a wall of dysfunction, running away is not the only option. When your job feels less like a calling and more like a pain in the rear, you don't have to quit and bail on it. When your finances have hit a brick wall, you don't have to fail. You don't have to pull off and say, you know what, I just can't do it. It is always by going through and not pulling out, running away from it, that we find the God who is there very much to take care of us and to carry us through. I want to end because if you work for Andrew Art long enough, you eventually have to read a poem in a sermon. And that's now where we have found ourselves, New Life East. Success. Success. This is what he promised me he could do. He would make my preaching better by making me read a sermon or by reading a poem. There's a poet by the name of Robert Frost, great, great American poet. And he has a poem called Servant to Servant. It's a lengthy poem. I'm not going to read the whole thing to you. It's 117 lines. We don't have time for that. But in the poem, it's the rambling of a woman who keeps house for her husband and his workers. She is what he calls a servant to servants who recognizes quote, that a woman's work is never done, unquote. And I recognize that for our like progressive minds, how far we've moved ahead, even to read a poem like this gets so weird for us. Her husband moves to the woods nearby. He lives by himself. And this woman imagines herself living in this idealistic setting with no one to care for but her and him. And it's a poem It forces us to ponder the idea of what do you do when things are hard, when things do not exactly change? A couple of lines from it to help us sort ourselves into it. 
as we get ready to go to the table. He writes, lens works a man's, of course, from son to son, but he works when he works as hard as I do. Though there's small profit in comparisons, women and men will make them all the same. But work ain't all. Len undertakes too much. Len says the best way out is always through. And I agree to that, or in so far as that I can see no way out but through. Least ways for me. Friends, I think this is the way we ought to approach those stretches of life where everything feels like it is not going the way we thought it would. Where it feels like everything is crumbling down and falling apart. The temptation is always to run away from our lives. It's to pull the ripcord. It's to escape. Yet what I think the biblical stories, I think the very work of God in the world says the best way out is always through. And don't we find that? With Jesus himself. That God could have chosen a million and a half ways to redeem all of humanity. God could have chosen a million and a half ways to rescue you and I from our own sin and brokenness. God could have done it just any way he wanted to. Like that is the God that we're dealing with. A God who can make the earth rattle and fire fall from heaven. He can do whatever he wants. And yet what he has observed about the world he has created is the best way out is always through, even to rescue those whom he loves. So that's what Jesus does. I think about Jesus in the garden in Mark 14. They went to a place called Gethsemane and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. They were bad listeners. So he took Peter, James, and John along with him and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled in Jesus. These are Jesus's words. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He said to them, stay here and keep watch. Going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that if it's possible, the hour might pass from him. There's all sorts of ways you can read what's happening in the garden. Some people would say that what's happening is Jesus is like true humanity is being revealed in this moment. And he does what you and I often do. Any way out of it, God, any other way. We can go backwards, we can go left, we can go right, but the way that I do not wanna go is through it. And Jesus cries out, Abba, Father, in some sense of resolve, he says, everything is possible for you, so would you take this cup from me? Yet, not what I will, but what you will. And this is the kind of stuff that we remember every time we come to the table. New Life East, would you stand with me this morning? As we come to the table, what we remember is that Jesus is himself God who said the best way out is always through. It is through the pain and suffering, the embarrassment, the mocking. It is through death itself that we, f- we find ourselves stumbling into eternal life. We find a God who comes to us when we under a tree would say, God, it might just be better if, if we weren't here. And we find a God who takes care of all of our needs and who ultimately gifts us with the gift of his presence. So it's on that night that Jesus was betrayed that he took bread and he broke it and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Every time that we would eat, would we do it remembering him 
That same night he took a cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Every time you drink, would you do it in remembrance of me? I wanna invite our communion servers to come forward. We're gonna form two lines down this center aisle, line on this side for this section, a line on this side for this section. They're gonna hand you a wafer that represents his body, which has been broken. You'll take that wafer, you'll dip it into the cup, signify his blood that has been shed for you. Before we come forward, I wanna say, I wanna pray over us this morning. I have a sense that there are those of us in this room who have found ourselves in a season just like this. So would you open up your hands? Let me pray over you. God, you have been with us from the moment we woke up. And if this story is true, you were even with us doing deep work in our lives, even before we were awake, while we were asleep. God, I want to pray over the person, the family, the couple who's felt like they have been striving, that they have been very zealous for you, for the ways of the Lord, and yet it feels like everything is still going wrong. God, I know that you cannot promise us a guarantee of goodness, but what you can promise us is that you will be with us the whole time. So as we come forward as a church family today, for those people, would they feel like they are not walking to this table alone, but that you are walking with them, that you will meet them in this spot? We pray all this in your name. Amen. Come forward and receive communion. Christ is my firm foundation.
up your hands, New Life East, receive this benediction as you go. Paul says that we're confident, we're confident that the one who began a good work in us will be faithful to carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. God isn't pulling the ripcord on your life. You don't need to either. And so I pray over you. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Uh, May he cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord turn his face towards you grant you his peace 
In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, grace, mercy, and peace be with you. Hey, two things real quick. I'm going to call our altar ministry uh, team forward. If you need prayer for anything, we'd love to pray with you. And uh, about a year ago, uh, I released a book with Nav Press called Streams in the Wasteland, Finding Spiritual Renewal with the Desert Fathers and Mothers. It's kind of a basic book on discipleship told through the lens of some of the early Christian monks of the first few centuries of the church. Uh, this just celebrated its one-year birthday. Woot, woot. And we had some uh, extra uh, inventory. It doesn't do any us any good having us sitting around at church. So there are a bunch of copies on the table over there. If you haven't had a chance to read it yet, uh, grab one on the way out. It's our gift to you. Maybe you've read it and there's somebody in your world who you think would really benefit by it. Uh, grab one or two or 10 copies, but let's get rid of them. Let's get those words out in the world. Thanks so much for that. Uh, coffee and donuts, fellowship hour. Stick around and hang out with us or whatever. Drive safe going home. We love you. Uh, go in peace to love and serve the Lord. We'll see you real soon.